Good morning. It's good to see you guys. I'm excited. We're getting ready to start a new sermon series, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and that's the, what you just heard on that video was the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It comes from Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, believe it or not, over the next over the whole summer, we're going to spend a long time. We're going to walk through very methodically, very deeply, the Sermon on the Mount. And there are several reasons why. To give you kind of a setting for what's going on here is Jesus is fairly early in his ministry. He has called his disciples. He has, he's pulled together his 12 apostles, and, and he's got those following him. And what he's doing is he has started to, to, to gather a pretty large crowd around him as he, as he travels around the region of Galilee. You can see on this map some of the areas where Jesus traveled all around. This is what would, you know, Israel, all around the Sea of Galilee here. Right on the northern shore is a city called Capernaum. And very near there is where the Sermon on the Mount would have taken place. It would have been up on a hillside where Jesus and, and some of his followers. But at this point, it says right before this in Matthew chapter 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount begins, it says he's gotten this gathering of people coming from all over. He's got people coming from, from, from Galilee, from, from Decapolis, which you can see over here down to the, uh, on the southeastern part of the Sea of Galilee, from Syria, from Jerusalem, from all these different places, from all around, people had started hearing it. Jesus was the toast of Israel. He was the toast of this whole region. People were wanting to come hear him and to see. And I can imagine as his disciples were, were hearing and seeing all this, remember, his disciples were just some ordinary men. They were fishermen and, and tax collectors, and they were people that just lived normal, everyday lives through living in this world and now this man comes and he calls him and says, come, follow me, be my disciple. I know you weren't called by the Jewish rabbis, but I want you. I want you to come follow me. I want you to come learn from me. And they did in faith. They stepped out and they left their lives behind. And now they're following this man and they're just ordinary. But now he's got these crowds, these crowds of thousands following him. I imagine that was a bit overwhelming, don't you think? They were kind of Jesus' inner circle. And now they're kind of like, they've got groupies. And it's kind of amazing. they got these people following them, and they're from all over the place. And, and so Jesus, at this point, he's got this crowd gathered. He's got all these people. He's got his disciples that are a little starstruck, a little awestruck at what's going on. And he decides it's time to get real with them. It's time to kind of lay some things down. You see, all these people, they would have had a knowledge of what we today call the Old Testament. They would have known the history they would have known the prophecies about the coming Messiah. They would have known these things, and they were hearing that Jesus might be the one. And they wanted to hear what he had to say. And so Jesus, taking them up on a hillside, and it says right there at the very beginning, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and you can see it up on your screen, you can follow along with me. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, and we'll get to the he said here in just a few minutes. How many of you like to memorize? How many of you feel like you're pretty good at memorizing things? Have a decent memory. I'm not going to make you do it right now. Don't worry. <laughs> but come on. Be proud. If you feel like you're pretty decent, some of you have that gift. You know, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what. I want to see how good your memories are. Okay? So I want you to complete after what I say. I want you to complete it. Okay? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Hey, y'all are good at this. Okay, try this one. Um, try. Whoa, we're halfway there. Whoa. You see, y'all are good at this. Y'all can do this. How about, 
How about, uh, let me see, I wrote down a couple others. Okay, how about this one? Four score and good, good. Y'all know Abraham Lincoln. Ask not what your country can do for you. Very good. Okay, if you consider spending time with your cousin at a family reunion to be a pretty good date, you might be a... Thank you. Okay, good. Y'all know this stuff. Y'all are pretty good. I can't do it quite like Jeff Foxworthy, but, you know, I, I, I was amazed. The other day, I was, uh, we were in life group, and this was totally spontaneous, and you can ask Andy and Will. We were, Wednesday night, we were in life group, and um, I was, we were talking about how our memory works. And back in 1989, how long ago was that, 26 years ago? Okay, back in 1989, I was in high school. There was an ad campaign by McDonald's. Okay, and some of you might remember this. I don't know if you do or not. A lot of people don't. But they did the menu, the whole menu. Remember that? When the guy came on, like the girl at the counter says, what would you like today? And he says, and he steps up and he goes, big Mac McDLT, a quarter pounder with some cheese filet, a fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, a happy moment, nuggets, I see golden french fries, and the larger size salad, chef or garden, or a chicken salad, oriental, big, big breakfast segment, muffin, hot cakes, and sausage, maybe dish, Danish hash brown, two and four dessert, dot apple pies on Sunday, three varieties, a soft serve, soft serve cone, three types of chicken, chocolate, chocolate, each cookie, and to drink a Coca-Cola, diet, coke, and orange sweet, a Sprite, a coffee, decaf, two, a low-fat milk, and orange juice, I love McDonald's, good time, great taste, and I get this all in one place, and I remember it, and I said it, I just, we were sitting there, I know. The sad part is I actually took time to memorize it. But we, I remember we were, we, were, uh, I remember we were on a choir tour with my high school choir, and we had stopped at McDonald's, and they had the whole thing like written out on the piece of paper, and we all like were just sitting around trying to memorize it. And it just, I looked at it a couple times, and I did it. And 26 years later, I hadn't, I, and I seriously had not thought about that in 26 years, and the whole thing just came to me. Okay, and it was amazing. Memory is an amazing thing. Okay, now some of us feel like we have better memories than others, but, and, I, and I feel like that's something I've always been kind of good at, is looking at something and it's sticking. But we, our memory, you guys remember things. You remember your favorite songs, don't you? you well, some of you, Constance doesn't, but some of you do. Some of you remember the lyrics to your favorite songs. Some of you remember famous lines. Some of you, you know, and I could sit here and say things that would spark memories in your head. Memory is a powerful thing for a few reasons. One, one is it's something that you can take with you. It's something that when you memorize something, it goes with you. You don't have to carry a book around. You don't have to have materials with you all the time. It sticks with you. Two, memory is a powerful thing because you can recall it when you need it most. And number three, memory is a powerful thing because you can recall it when someone else needs it most. Memory is a powerful thing. It used to be, I remember when we were kids, that Bible scripture verse memory was a big deal. How many of you remember when you were a kid doing like VBS or camp and memorizing verses? And you know, do y'all still remember some of those verses? I mean, we all kind of know some of the big ones like John 3.16 and so like that. But maybe you, maybe you were part of, anybody in here ever part of Bible Bowl? Where you had to memorize large sections of scripture and stuff like that. Yeah, Cheryl was okay. And uh, and maybe I remember uh, I remember in, in Bible college we had to memorize like Philippians chapter two and and pieces of the Sermon on the Mount and things like that. Well, here's my whole point. I want to challenge you, and I want you guys to join me. And I'm going to try to do this myself. Andy's already done it. Okay, and Andy's the one, Andy did it a few years back, and he. I'm not going to put him on the spot and make him do it this morning, but I know he could if I asked him to. But but um but. I want you to memorize the Sermon on the Mount with me. <laughs> You're like, no way. 
Three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, that might seem kind of daunting as I say it right now to memorize three whole chapters of the Bible, but I'm not going to make you memorize it all at once, okay? But hopefully by the end of it, you could recite the whole thing. What we're going to do is we're just going to take it section by section. We're going to preach 15 messages out of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to break up these three chapters into 15 sections. And each time that following week, we're going to try to memorize it. And so the challenge for you is this week... Memorize Matthew 5, 1 through 12. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, some, like next week, there's only like four verses we're going to do, okay? And so that'll be a lot easier to memorize. And the week after that, so we're going to move through it slow enough to where I'm only challenging. And what I might do is occasionally I might see if somebody says they memorized it, ask you to come up and share it with us. And just for fun, I'm not going to make you do it, but, but uh, then again, I might. Who knows? But, um, but I want it to be fun. I want it to be something, but I think Bible memory is such an important thing. Why? Because I think the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus standing up before his disciples and his believers and saying, guys, this is some of the most important stuff. This is the stuff I want you to carry with you. This is the stuff that I want you to remember the rest of your life. And so Jesus giving us the keys to the kingdom, the keys to heaven, in the Sermon on the Mount, I think if we were to put that into memory, there's not many situations you could face in your life when you wouldn't stop, recall something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and it would give you the courage, the strength, the help, the encouragement that you needed. I think that's an awesome thing, don't you? I think that would be an awesome thing to be able to just know the very words of Jesus could flow out of you in any given circumstance, in any given situation. And so I'm just challenging you. I'm, gonna, you know, I'm not going to make anybody do anything, but, but I'm going to ask next week, who did it? Who memorized Matthew 5, 1 through 12? And I might get somebody to come up and recite it with me, and I'm going to try to do it too. So let's see how we can do, okay? That'll be kind of fun to do. Let's talk about this. Um, what's the difference between being lucky and being blessed? We kind of use these words interchangeably a lot, don't we? But what's the difference? What's the difference between being lucky and being blessed. You see, as we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, I think, this, I think this is an important question we have to ask. A farmer once had a horse. This farmer depended on this horse for everything, to till his land and to, and to haul his carts and everything. This farmer depended on this horse for everything. And one day, one day the horse gets away, runs off. And all the, the, the people that lived around the farmer were just shaking their head. Man, man, what bad luck. The farmer just kind of shrugged his shoulders and says, bad luck, good luck, who knows? Well, about a week passes, the farmer hears something outside and he looks out his window and he sees that his horse has returned and brought this whole group of wild horses with him. And so the, all these horses come in and he corrals them all and he's got all these horses now and his friends that lived around him were like, wow, I cannot believe your good luck, this is amazing. The farmer just kind of shrugs and says, eh. Good luck, bad luck, who knows? Well, later that week, the farmer's young son was trying to tame one of the wild horses. And one of the horses bucked him off, and he falls to the ground, and he breaks his leg. All of his friends say, wow, what terrible luck. And the farmer just kind of smiles and shrugs his shoulders and says, bad luck, good luck, who knows? Well, a couple weeks go by, and the army rides into town, and they're looking for soldiers to come and fight in a bloody war. They're going to take all the young men with them. But the young farmer's son laying in bed with his broken leg, the army decides, well, we can't use him. Let him stay. 
And of course, all the people that lived around the farmer says, what amazing luck. What amazingly good luck. And the farmer just shrugs and says, good luck, bad luck. Who knows? What's the difference between being lucky and being blessed? I look at luck this way. This is just my personal definition. I look at luck like this. I look at luck as, uh, as kind of being when you analyze your current circumstances in isolation to, de- to determine whether they're in your favor or not. You take any given circumstance in isolation, just this moment right here and now, does this work towards my favor or not? I want to ask you to turn to Romans 8.28 with me. And this is a verse a lot of you might have put to memory, or at least kind of. But this is a great verse. A lot of people use this as their life verse. A lot of people like this verse to just be general encouragement to them. I like it too. It says this. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let me say it again. And we know that in all things, right? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let me ask you, do you really believe this verse? Do you believe it? That in all things, you see, when I tell you luck is me taking any given circumstance and deciding whether that circumstance is to my favor or not. For instance, I win the lottery. Wow, what amazing luck. I won the lottery, right? On the other end of the coin, I lost my job. Man. What terrible luck. Just in isolation, looking at those two circumstances. One is clearly good luck, and one is clearly bad luck. But let me challenge you to think of it this way. As you begin to grow in your faith, or as you continue to grow in your faith, as you come to a place when you begin to understand what it really means to be blessed, you begin to learn how to look at things like Romans 8.28 says. That in all things, all things work together for the good of those who love him. To those who are called according to his purpose. And when you can begin looking at life that way, you begin to understand the difference between what it means to be blessed and what it is to be lucky. For instance, if I'm going to think about things through the lens of Romans 8.28 and I start thinking about things in terms of blessing of God instead of luck, then I can, look at, I can look at this, winning the lottery, but then I begin to think of things through and realize, well, everybody around you is going to start asking you for money all the time. Uh, you begin becoming obsessive with all of your investments, hoping that they don't crash. Uh, the IRS is going to audit you every year. It might be good luck, but I think the question could be asked, is it really a blessing? Let's think about the other situation. You lose your job. You lost your job, and it feels really bad, and it seems like terrible luck. But you begin looking for a new line of work, and and you discover something that you love to do. You start your own business, and soon you're making three times as much money as you did before, and you're happy doing it. You see, losing your job might have seemed like bad luck, But is it possible that it was a blessing? You understand now? The difference between being blessed and being lucky. Blessed in the dictionary. Here's a definition that I looked up. This is what it says in the dictionary. Simply this. 
Being blessed is divine or supremely favored. Here are some words it uses to go along with it. Fortunate, rewarded, happy. You see, I think when you look in the, and when I looked in Strong's Concordance and, and Greek Dictionary, I looked up the word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about being blessed. That's exactly the definition that he was used when he says, blessed are those, dot, dot, dot. That's exactly the definition he was using that Strong's points out, divine or supremely favored. You see, it goes beyond looking at your current circumstances in isolation and realizing that to be blessed means you trust your circumstances and their ultimate outcomes into the hands of God. Do you hear that? That to be blessed means I'm not going to just look at this situation, whether it's good luck or bad luck. I'm going to look at everything through the lens of either I trust this in God's hands to work for my good, or I don't. Am I going to look at this as I'm lucky, or am I going to look at it as I'm blessed? Erwin McManus, in his book, and you've heard me if you've been here for any amount of time, refer to this book before, Seizing Your Divine Moment. And it's really a great book. I challenge you to read it sometime. Seizing Your Divine Moment by Erwin McManus. And, and this is a great book because he's talking, the whole book's premise is talking about how we so often, how God has set aside for each of us moments in which he wants to use us to do amazing things, divine moments in our lives, and how often we miss them because we're not looking for them. Or because we might mistake them for something bad. And God all the time is putting us in circumstances where he can use us. And, use us. and McManus was describing how early in his ministry, he and his wife Kim had just gotten married. And they had nothing. They had no home. They had no money. They had no investments. They had no kids. They had nothing. And they were just starting out, and all they really wanted to do was follow the lead of God and go into ministry. And that was their passion, and that's what they were doing, and they were enjoying it. But it wasn't long before they got a job. And pretty soon, McManus gets this job where he's making a decent amount of money for the first time in his life. And man, right off the bat, he and his wife, they're able to buy a car for the first time. And they're able to buy their home. They're able to buy a house for the first time. And they are just feeling so blessed by God. And God was just throwing open the floodgates. And, and they were able to enjoy things. And they, were, they, they had material possessions for the first time in their life. And they were really enjoying this. And it wasn't long before they had bought this house and had bought the car and, and had these things around them that they had a kid. They had a family and just things were going great and the blessings of God were pouring out on them because they were doing their, his work. But that was when the voice of God called again. God had shown them a new journey he wanted them to go on. A new, shall we say, divine appointment. But there were some glitches. Because of this new calling from God, it meant the job would have to go. It meant the house would have to go. It meant that all of their savings would have to go. They were going to get to keep the kid. But this is how McManus described it. Look at the quote up on the screen. It says, It's not an understatement to say that God's blessings were like an anchor around our ankles. We had received them as we walked with God... Yet now they had the potential of paralyzing us and robbing us from the divine moment before us. And then he went on to say this, If what he has given us now stands between us, we must once again lay it at his feet. You see, Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount 
with what we today call the Beatitudes. And what he does is he's coming before his disciples and he's saying, I know that you're hoping I'm the Messiah. I need to give you some things to understand who I truly am and what that truly means. I need you to understand about what it's going to mean to follow me. Because I'm going to call you to some things, and what I'm calling you to is going to be an amazing blessing. But it's not going to seem like very good luck. I'm going to call you to some amazing things, but it's going to put you in some pretty difficult circumstances. And so I need you, before I launch into the rest of this message, the greatest sermon ever given... I need you to understand some things about what it means to be blessed and who it is in my kingdom that will be blessed. And that's how Jesus, he opens the Sermon on the Mount with setting his disciples up this way. And that's how we're going to jump in to the Sermon on the Mount today by talking about the Beatitudes when Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you live this way. It may not feel very lucky, but there's a promise attached to it. And that's what we're going to take a look at. So today, we're going to approach the Beatitudes in a unique way. We're going to kind of run through these few verses here, Matthew 5, 3 through 12. And we're going to jump through them, but I'm going to parallel two different versions for you. We're going to look at the NIV to start with, which is the one I think a lot of you use on a regular basis. But then we're going to use a version called the Message. And maybe you've heard of it, okay? We're going to compare it to... Now, the Message, I'll just go ahead and tell you this, was created by a guy about 10, 15 years ago named Eugene Peterson. He was a pastor. He was also a Greek and Hebrew scholar. And in putting this together, it is a direct translation, but what he's done is he's put a lot of American idioms in it. He is a very idiomatic American slang is what he uses a lot in it. And his whole purpose wasn't to create a brand new study Bible for everyone to go by and use as their sole source of study. What he wanted to do was create a Bible that his people in his church would read and understand what it meant in their everyday language, the language that they walked around and used every day. And so what I think, I think the Beatitudes probably more than anything else are a great way to look at this in two different versions, the NIV and the message, because what I think he does in the message I think he does an amazing job of capturing how we would say the Beatitudes today in American jargon. And so I hope that helps you understand because I think it's important as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's vitally critical that we don't move on to the next section of Scripture until you understand the Beatitudes, until you understand what Jesus is saying. This is what it means to be blessed in my kingdom. Jesus is about to give us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He is about to honor each of us with that. But in that, he wants to make sure we understand exactly what we're taking the keys to. And so let's start. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. We're going to roll through this quickly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what the NIV says. Now look at what it says in the message. It says, if you're blessed, it says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God. In his rule. Think about what that's saying. I love the way that's worded. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God in his rule. You see, when there's no more of you to depend on, when you've used up all of your understanding and all of your power and all of your abilities, and you're at the end of your rope, all that's left is to turn to God or to give up. Those are your only two choices. No one would call reaching the end of your rope, lucky, but Jesus calls it a blessing. Why? He says this right here. He says, 
our circumstance, when we're at the end of our rope and when we're all out of answers, our blessing is that God takes over. He says, it doesn't look good when we get to the end of our rope, when we're poor in spirit, when things just are looking dark. Nobody likes that. doesn't feel very lucky. But the cool thing is, I promise you a blessing. When you let go of the rope, God takes over. Isn't that a cool thing? Isn't that an amazing blessing? If you trust it, if you will depend on it. Let's move on. Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The message says it this way. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. That's a cool way of saying it. Nobody wants to experience loss. Nobody. A loved one, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of a friendship, or even the loss of a valuable possession. But when you do, you get to experience the comfort of knowing God is with you no matter what. Here's the thing. Until you've experienced loss, you can't really understand what it feels like. Until you've experienced loss, you don't know what it feels like to be comforted and embraced by the Holy Spirit of God. I wonder how many of us in here today have trusted in and depended on and experienced a peace that passes understanding, as Philippians chapter 4 describes it. It doesn't make sense. We don't understand it. But I know that the Spirit of God is embracing me and giving me peace. What a blessing that is to know that I can mourn and I can suffer loss and gain a blessing from it of knowing I'm in the arms of Jesus. That's such an awesome thing. Moving down to the next one, Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Here's what the message says. For you're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. Meekness and humility are not celebrated characteristics in our society today. Many of us are ambitious. We want more. We want bigger. We want better. We dream about the future of comfort and success and reward and retirement. At its root, to be humble and meek means we are content right where we are with what we have. You can be, number one, I'm happy with what God has given me today. When we get to a place where I'm content, it's not to say success is bad. And I don't want you to mistake that. It's not to say that, that a desire for success in whatever you do, you should desire success and excellence. I'm not putting that down. But Jesus is saying when you get to a place where it's not always a rat race to see if you can be number one. And you can get to a place where you can say, who I am and what I am is exactly what God created, and I'm content with that. That's an amazing blessing when you can live with that with happiness. And Jesus tells us that's an amazing blessing in our life. You see, the circumstance of being humble brings the blessing of contentment. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The message says it this way. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. 
If you seek God, you'll find him. If you're hungry to find him and you thirst for his word, you will find that you have filled an emptiness in your life that has never been filled before. And that's a promise. I wonder, and I don't want you to raise your hand or anything, but I wonder how many of you came in here today with this persistent emptiness in your life. You know something's missing. Jesus says when you begin to hunger and thirst after God, when you begin to hunger and thirst for his word, it will fill that empty space up. What a blessing that is. It's a promise. It's a blessing. When we're hungry for God, we will be satisfied. That is the blessing. Matthew 5, 7 says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The message says it this way, You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourself cared for. Showing the gift of mercy means you look for ways to care for others, and when you do that, your own needs will be met. How often do you find that in your marriage? How often do you find that in your family? If you will focus on the need of the other, and the other focuses on the need of you, you each have your needs met, and you've done it by caring for the other. And that's an awesome blessing in marriage that God's given us. And he says our lives can work like that everywhere we go. The circumstance being when we care for others, the blessing is that we are cared for in return. What a blessing that is. Matthew 5, 8, the NIV says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The message says it this way, You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. See, it's all about pursuing righteousness. It's all about pursuing holiness. Listen, none of us is ever going to be perfect. But you know what? You can pursue it, can't you? We can focus on it. You can make it a daily mission. Even though you failed yesterday, you can get up today and say, I'm going to pursue righteousness. I'm going to pursue perfection in the eyes of God. And I'm probably going to fail at it again, but I'm going to go after it. And I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And when we start to do that, it's amazing. You will begin to see God in everything around you. God becomes more clear and recognizable than ever before. You see, the circumstance is this. When I begin pursuing holiness in my life, the blessing is that I begin to recognize God in my life. That's an awesome thing. And it's something that we can take a hold of. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The message says, you're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. And that's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. There's no better place to see this, I believe, than in the church. When each of us is intentionally seeking unity, we build a family. We build a church. And that's how it is when we're part of God's family. We enjoy unity and being a part of something great. It's also true in your life, but when we have the church and we're unified, we know that we can, in our circumstance, seek unity, and the blessing in that is that we belong to God. And you might put God's family on the end of that. We know that we belong to God's family. What a blessing it is to know that you belong to something that matters. You belong to something that's going to love you back. You're going to belong to something that belongs to God. You're going to be His. When you become part of a family... You're adopted. You become who they are. And you get all the blessings that come along with that. To be a part of God's family comes with amazing blessings.
Matthew 5.10, we're almost done. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the message says you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Listen, taking a stand is scary. It opens you up for being called all sorts of names, judgmental, backwards, legalistic. But when we take a stand for purity, for morality, for God, the persecution that we will endure will draw us nearer to him. That is all that matters, and we can endure anything. You see, the circumstance is this. When we're persecuted for taking a stand, the blessing is we're drawn closer to God. Nobody wants to be persecuted. None of us is going to seek it out. But what it does to us in our relationship with him is an amazing blessing. The final passage in this section is Matthew 5, 11 and 12. We're going to look at them together. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The message says it this way. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when this this happens. Give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. And the circumstance is simple. Hurt and attacked because of your faith. The blessing is you're going to hear the applause of heaven. You're going to be in his kingdom with him. And that's all that really matters. You see, today we want to wrap up with this thought. Being lucky, being lucky means this. It means an instant reward with an uncertain future. But being blessed means possibly a delayed reward with an eternal promise. I've got to ask you the same question that I think Jesus was asking his disciples. Would you rather be lucky or blessed? Which would you rather have in your life? Would you rather have it all right now without really knowing what the future holds? Or would you rather take hold of God's promises, even though maybe you're facing some circumstances that you're not too sure about, you're not very happy about at all, But say, God, I'm in your hands. I trust you with this. I know that all these things are going to work together for the good because I love you. And that leads me to this question as we end the day. Do you love him? Do you trust him? We're going to sing an invitation song like we do every week. It's it's not just a closing song. It's It's an opportunity for you to respond to what you've heard today. Maybe you're ready to start living life on the blessings of God instead of just luck. Maybe you're ready to understand what those promises look like in your own life. You can have it today. You can have that promise in your life today. If you've never given yourself to God, if you've never committed your life to Him and been obedient in baptism, I invite you to come down and talk to me about it. I'd love to start that conversation with you this morning. 
If you just want to pray about this, if something that we've talked about this morning is sparking you to pray about your circumstances and how they can be used for the good, about your attitude about them or whatever it is, use this song, this time as we conclude the service today in prayer. Asking God, you can come forward. We have some prayer partners that will come and meet you if you want to pray with somebody. Or if you just want to pray alone right where you are, that's fine too. But don't leave here if there's something that you need to say to God. If there's something in your life that needs to change. If there's some way that you need to begin taking hold of the blessings that God has promised you rather than just depending on luck. Respond the way you need to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning that we could be here and and our opportunity to worship you and our opportunity to to celebrate moms and and to to celebrate the ministry that you began with this message, this powerful message we call the Sermon on the Mount. And God, I pray that these blessings that we've just read about, these promises you've given us in our life, God, I pray that that we can each examine our own lives right now, that we can each look in our own hearts and say, am I living my life trusting God with all these circumstances? Because to take the keys to the kingdom of heaven that we're going to hear in the rest of your Sermon on the Mount, God, we've got to understand this. We've got to understand the difference and what it means to be blessed by you. And God, I pray that we can leave here with that knowledge in Jesus' name. Amen.